Good morning, Family Church. I wanted to begin with something that's not um, in my planned sermon, which is always a great way to start out the morning. Sometimes dangerous, sometimes it's a blessing. Uh, Last night we had our Connect group, we had a a Christmas party at our Connect group, and we decided that we were going to go caroling. And uh, Terry had that idea, and we were all a little unsure of it. Some people were excited, some people when we got there, all of a sudden we weren't really sure about it, so we decided to do it. Um, And I just wanted to share what a blessing it was. And if you're part of a Connect group or you have some friends here at the church, I would encourage all of you to try to do something like that. It was such a blessing. We went and got our group together, and we went to neighbors' homes, and we found out that people don't know how to respond to caroling down here in Naples and Marco. One house gave our children candy. Uh, They had a bowl of candy at the door. Hey, here. And the kids were excited. I think a different house gave some of the children money. Um, So I'm not saying to do this so your kids get candy or money from strangers, which is what happened, but there was one house that we went to, and we were singing, and nobody was coming out, and that's always an awkward awkward time when you're singing no one's coming out to the door and then we left and we went to the next house and uh, a guy ran out of the house and he said why did you stop why did you stop and we're like well nobody you didn't turn the lights on you didn't come out and and we sang um we sang a just a christ-centered christmas carol to him and then we ended with we wish you a merry christmas and we greeted him and and he just had tears flowing down his face and he said that was so so beautiful thank you guys so much for coming out and for sharing this um, so we were able to just give them a flyer and to invite them and say, hey, we encourage you to, to come out to our Christmas Eve service. We're part of a church. And uh, he was just so excited uh, about what we were doing. And so I encourage you, if you're part of a Connect group or if you're not, to find a Connect group where maybe before Christmas Eve or before Christmas you guys can go Christmas caroling. It was such a blessing to our group. I just wanted to share that with you this morning. Well, as we've been going through the book of Ephesians We are now in Ephesians chapter 4. We've preached every verse in the book of Ephesians verse by verse. Last week, we did a summary of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. And this morning, we're doing a summary of Ephesians 4 through 6. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And would you pray with me as we begin? Let's pray. God, we do give you praise for who you are. God, we thank you for coming down and stepping into our sinful world. God, help us just as we sang, to prepare room for you. Not just today, but tomorrow, the rest of our week, the rest of our life. God, help us to have a place in our hearts where you are seated on the throne, high and lifted up. God, you have given us a gift that it's hard to comprehend. We're thankful for it. God, may it be the driving force in our life, this gift called the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for our sins. God, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in the resurrection. God, we love you. We give you praise. We pray for our time this morning. May it be glorifying to you and edifying to us as we open your word and learn from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a major theme in chapter 4 is unity in the church. So let's begin in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner... For the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. A lot of things in there, so I want to just work through and break those things down. Paul is urging those in the church, us, 
He's saying, listen, the gift you've been given in Jesus Christ, because of that gift, your life should look differently. And so since our lives look differently, we act differently. We talk differently. We treat one another differently. And he goes on and he says a couple of ways how. Humility, gentleness, and patience should be some trademarks in our life. So practically speaking, what are some things, this is audience participation, what are some things that Christians can be humble and gentle in? What do we think? Some things we can be humble and gentle in. Lively crowd here. This is what we felt like at some of those houses, Christmas caroling. So help me out. What are some things we can be gentle or humble in? Marriage. Okay, great. What else? What about our words? Right? We can be gentle and humble in our words. Our perception of others. Perception of others. How we judge others. Our reactions. Some things we can be gentle and humble in. But then it goes on and it says patience. Why do we need to have patience? This isn't like a patience we're waiting on the Lord, waiting for patience. It actually says patience for something else. So what do we need to have patience for as believers? Well, the interesting thing is as we keep reading, it says bearing with one another in love. Well, what does that mean? God knows that in a church, we're going to get on each other's nerves. That's what it means. And we have to bear with one another with patience, gentleness, and humility because we have the capacity and the capability as Christians to really aggravate one another, get under each other's skin, to think lowly of somebody else and to place ourselves on priority. I know you've probably never experienced this in a church where somebody frustrated you, right? Or another believer. Well, Scripture says that we bear with them in love. We have to remember Ephesians was written to those inside of the church. And this was just a a startling reminder. Every time the New Testament talks about unity, it's never unity with the people we think we need unity with. I mean, we think all of us here are, are unified. We have a lot in common that we're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But when we go out in the world, those are the people we really have problems with. But Scripture actually says... Those people you're trying to reach, you don't have problems with those people. Actually, a lot of the times, believers have problems with who? Other believers in the church. So we're never called to have unity with the world. We're always called to have unity within the church. Just a kind of a surprising thing, a reminder for all of us that God calls us to be unified in the midst of that. Well, this is for a couple of reasons. One, we can't have unity with the world. Scripture says to separate ourselves from the world, try to reach the world with the gospel, but in the church we must stay unified. It's the only place where we can have true unity. The Bible is always showing us in the context of warning us, reminding us, and teaching us that we have to pursue unity in the church. It's all of our jobs as believers in the church to fight for unity. That's why last week I talked about some theological differences We can talk about theological differences and and we can sometimes have some lively conversations, but that shouldn't be a cause of division in the church because there's so many other things we have in Christ unified. Psalms 133 verse 1, you don't need to turn there, it will be on the screen, it says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Brothers and sisters in Christ dwelling in unity. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it will also be on the screen. It says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
but in humility consider others better than yourselves. As I was studying church unity, gotquestions.org, which is a great website that can be a help for us, I wanted to uh, share some things that they said. It says, all disunity in a church can be traced back to the simple truth that too often we act selfishly and consider ourselves better than others. Paul goes on to explain further in the verse, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Got Questions goes on to say this, and they really get to the, the meat of the issue here. But Paul tells us we are to consider others' needs before our own needs. In all modesty, humility, and lowliness of mind, we are to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. A church that is filled with such people cannot help but have peace, unity, and harmony. The truly humble person, this is how we all need to be. The truly humble person sees his own faults in light of the perfection of Christ himself. He does not seek to see the faults of other people. But when he does see other people's faults, he speaks the truth in love and desires their sanctification so they will be built up in the image of Christ. It goes on and says this, he sees his own heart and the corruption that lies hidden there, along with impure motives and evil ambitions. But he does not seek to notice the errors, defects, and follies of others. He sees the depravity of his own heart and hopes charitably in the goodness of others and believes their heart are more pure than his. How many times would I like to be reminded of that when I get in an argument or when my wife and I are having a discussion, right? That I'm thinking, maybe it's my own depravity of my own heart. And that my wife is really the pure one here and I'm not. That's the way scripture says we should be in all of our circumstances. Thinking more better of the other person and lower of ourselves. Thinking, you know what? They, they have good reasons to believe what they're believing. Maybe I'm the one who needs to go back and reflect on what I need to do or how I responded to the situation. That's what it means to have unity, to pursue unity. But most of the time, our natural reaction is to say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, right? And our natural response is who? Me. I am. Oh, that's right. I'm the, I'm the one who always has the best idea, the greatest thing, the right perspective, and I know that this is why I'm so thankful that I've had Terry and other men around me at the church because I can think some are, something's a great idea, and I'm thinking on this and writing out a plan for a great idea, and then I share it, and they're like, that's a horrible idea. And I'm like, what do you mean that's a horrible idea? We, we can get pretty defensive when we think something's the greatest idea, and then other people are like, that's, I think you're off a little bit, you know? And that's what it means to have unity amongst others, that my idea always isn't the best idea. My perspective isn't always the best perspective. Well, Scripture goes on to say that we as Christians must be, verse number three, if you're following along, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's a couple of observations that I want to point out here on this verse. Number one, it assumes there is some former or current form of unity among the parties already. Secondly, acknowledges there is such a thing as unity that can be achieved among parties. There's sometimes unity is unachievable. Well, Scripture is saying we can have unity in the church. But third, and this is important, unity 
is not an absence of problems or an absence of differences of opinions. We can agree to disagree on some things and still have unity in our marriage, in our relationships, at our workplace, and in the church. We know all from Scripture that the New Testament churches, they had tons of problems, tons of differences. Jewish people and Gentiles coming together. I mean, two opposite extreme worlds colliding into one thing called the church. We know they had major differences in viewpoints on everything, but they could have unity. And this is what they're called to have. So, for example, what it means to be eager to maintain unity. Well, when you're in a, a spat with your spouse, I'm sure that doesn't happen to the majority of us, right? But it does in my household. Sometimes when a, a man and I have a disagreement, are we eager to go back and fix it immediately? That's what it means to be eager, that, to be eager to go back and, and I want to fix the relationship with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. I, I need to go back and work. Maybe I need to assume better of her and assume more lowly of myself. Maybe that would really help a lot of things not get to that point, right? If I was humble and gentle in the midst of that. Well, we all need these type of things this morning. So I have a question for us this morning. If we're eager to maintain unity in our relationships, does it matter what the perspective is of the other person? If, if we are eager to pursue unity, does it matter if they want unity or not? Our answer should be no. It doesn't matter what the third party or second party is doing. It's between us and the Lord. I need to be eager. You need to be eager to maintain the unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. For the Christians you have in your life, believers, your spouse, your family members, you need to be the eager one. Don't put it on them. Don't say, well, if they wanted it, then I would have it too. You need to be the one who's pursuing unity all the time. That doesn't mean as believers we overlook things, but we come about it with the right perspective. And it leads me to our first point this morning. Believers do not create unity, but are only commanded to maintain the unity that has already been created and established by Christ himself. We can't create unity at all. Scripture never says we create it, you create it. It says we maintain it. What do we maintain? Well, we maintain the unity that Christ came and did himself. Let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. And we've preached through this, but Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 says Christ did this. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, the Jewish people and the Gentile people, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, Jesus Christ, might create in himself one new man, that is the church, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ came took our sins upon himself, for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He took our sins so that we don't have to bear, so we can have a good relationship with God the Father. That's the maintaining of the unity. We didn't create it. We couldn't create it from the very beginning. We sang about the mystery foretold. 
How many times do we stop and thank God that we're living in the time we're living in? That's one of the things when I'm singing these songs, I praise God, that that we see the mystery that has been unfolded, that we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ in our lives right now. And I can have unity with you. You can have unity with me, and you can have unity with the brothers and sisters around you because of what Christ has done. So we must be eager to maintain the unity Well, a question that brings up is, how do we maintain unity? Well, Scripture goes on to address it. Look with me in verse 4. Verse 4. We're going to see seven things of how we maintain unity. Verse 4, it goes through and says, There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to one call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In order for any particular group of people to have unity about anything, there has to be a set of core doctrines or core beliefs or a statement of beliefs. And Scripture just gave us seven things that we pursue unity in. So the first one, one body. And you can just jot these down. You don't need to turn there because there's seven of them. So one body. That is the church, Ephesians 2.16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. One spirit, we find in Ephesians 2.18, says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have one hope as believers, one hope we believe in. That's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. One Lord, we see... And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. We have one faith. Ephesians 4.13 and Jude 3. Listen to Jude 3 here. It says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have one baptism. Last week we were blessed to be able to have a baptism here. We believe in one baptism. And it goes on and says this, For as many as you were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. The last one, it goes on to say, One God and Father of all. We see this in Romans 11, 36. For through him... Or from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In our church, Scripture talks about us being a body. And a lot of times I think we forget what this means. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, this is the perspective we need to take all the time. Including with our, our marriage and with our family and with our friends. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored and lifted up, all rejoice together. That's the way it should be. That's why we fight for unity in our marriage. That's why we fight for unity in the church. Because when one suffers, we all suffer. That's what it means to be in a family. That's what it means to be in a church. Well, look with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 And it goes on to say that God has given the church some things. And one of the things that God has given the church is pastors to accomplish his purposes in the church. And if you remember, pastors are not the one who do the work of ministry. 
Do you remember, church, who does the work of ministry? It is who? Us, right? The church. The church does the work of ministry, and pastors are called to what? Let's see if you remember. Equip. I heard, I heard one person, but I think there was a couple people say, we're called to equip the church. It goes on, verse 12, to equip the saints for the works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, and we do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Verse 14 goes on to say what benefits we get from being equipped from the pastors. Verse 14, so that we, all of us in the church, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How many of us have somebody in our life or we know somebody, they say they're a believer, but their life looks like this verse. They're tossed to and fro all the time. They don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. They think this is the best idea. And then a couple of weeks later, it's no longer a good idea. How many of us know somebody kind of like that? How many of us can raise our hand at all? How many of us can't raise our hand? Okay, I got, I got, I got some. Great. Okay. But Scripture says God doesn't desire that for us as children. That He wants us to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good for us. And in church, among other believers, learning from the Scripture is what grounds us. And so instead of having somebody, they, they're here and then they're there and they're this relationship and that relationship and all over the place, God says, no, I want you to be grounded and I've equipped the church to equip you so that that may not happen in your life. I also want us to see here, going on in verse 15, it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Talking about the body again, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part of the body is working properly, listen to this next word, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what is it that the Bible says makes the church grow? Unity and love in the church. And a lot of churches, they take this growth strategy of if you have a really good music ministry, the church will grow. Right, Luke? Really good music ministry, that's all you need in a church. Really good children's ministry. Or sometimes you just bring in the right guy with the right jokes, with the right charisma, he's going to grow the church. Well, Scripture says all of those things working together, biblically centered, is the thing that makes the church grow. Not one individual or one ministry or one program, but it's when everybody is growing together. Point number two I want us to dig into is the Christian life is characterized by an edifying lifestyle. Christian life is characterized by an edifying lifestyle. Well, what does that mean? Our lives should be edifying to others. Well, Scripture gives us some examples Look with me in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. It goes on and says this, We as Christians should put away falsehood. So we shouldn't gossip. We shouldn't speak lies about other people. But Scripture is never satisfied with stopping something. It always goes on from stopping to a neutral state to doing something. What does the rest of the Scripture say? But instead, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We are members of one body. Verse 28, it goes on and says this, another example. Let the thief no longer steal, 
Well, in our society, if, if a thief stops stealing, and this could also mean if we take advantage of somebody else's generosity, or it could also mean maybe we have a bad business practice and we abuse that, potentially. It says, stop doing those things. Well, that would be great if people stopped doing those things, but they still don't have a job, right? Well, Scripture goes on and says, but rather let him labor. Well, in our society, if a thief stopped stealing and he went and got an honest paying job, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I heard one person. That's a good thing in our society, right? He's now an upstanding citizen. He's, he's pursuing things. He's part of a functioning society. Well, Scripture says the thief, he was stealing things on whose behalf? His. Well, if he goes and gets an honest paying job, he's now working on whose behalf? His. Do you see both of those are self-centered? I'm stealing because I love myself and I want more stuff. Well, you stop doing that. You get an honest paying job. I'm working because I love myself and now I want to get toys with the money I've earned. It's still a focus on self. So scripture goes on to say, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with others in need. Heart issues here, Scripture's getting at. And I know we've spoken about this, but I, I want us to think, and this is a question for all of us to ask, including myself, really gets to the heart of the issue. Do you work at your job so that you can get more or that, so you can give more generously to others? A question for us to think, because Scripture always comes about it as we should work not just to provide for ourselves, but to provide for others first. One of those heart-stabbing questions that Scripture gets at, saying that we work not for ourselves, but for others. Verse 29, it just gives us a lot of examples of things of how our life should look as believers. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. But instead, so it's putting off, Gossip, slander, talking negative about other people, putting off grumbling and complaining. If we had somebody following us around, every time we say something negative, they hit a big buzzer. I think there'd be a lot of times we have buzzers going off in our life, but it says stop doing those things. And it's not just enough to stop. It says instead, go on to do this. Only speak as is good for building other people up. So that it fits the occasion, that it may bless all of those who hear you. How hard is it for us to do that? I mean, mama used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, man, everybody knows that one, okay? I should have just came out first with that one. So if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, this one says, if you don't have anything nice to say, it's not enough just to be silent. It actually goes on to say the only things you should be saying are nice things, and loving things to others. Now, this doesn't mean as believers that we never say anything that's going to hurt somebody's feelings. Because there are times in my life, and I'm sure there's times in your life, where I need somebody to hurt my feelings. Okay? People are like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take advantage of that one. <laughs> but there really are some times where I need somebody to come alongside and hurt my pride or hurt my feelings because I don't always have it all together. I'm a sinful person and sometimes do things sinfully. 
And I hope people will come alongside of me and say, hey, Casey, time out. I think, I think this is maybe what Scripture says, and this is what you're doing. Things are a little bit wrong here. I need that, and so do you. So this doesn't mean we're silent, but we need to understand that by pointing out sin in others' lives from time to time, that is an act of love and edification in itself. So that doesn't mean we just walk around and never touch on people's toes. What it means to be in a family is we share with one another because we love each other. And I want to add in here that this is not a have to. All of these things, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, and start doing these things. Please understand as believers, we don't have to stop these things. It's a privilege we get to stop these things. I'm not a Christian because I don't lie, because I don't steal, because I don't do all these things the Bible says don't do. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, because he stepped down into my life when I did all these things and showed me a better way. And he came and died for those things. He took God's wrath for me on my behalf for those things. And he said, if you come, follow me. And I don't stop doing those things because I have to. I stop because I love the Lord and I get to now live a different way. That's what it means to be a Christian is he has so changed me that I want to live for him. So all of these things, we live differently, not because we have to, but because we get to. I want us to move to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And we're going from unity in the church, and now we're going to go to somewhere else a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and it says this, Submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. And I'm going to use some synonyms and antonyms here for the word reverence. And I have two quick observations for us. The first one is this. When we submit to others, we do it out of a reverence, devotion, and adoration for Jesus Christ himself. This isn't submitting to other authorities like the president in your life. This is about submitting to those sitting around you and your spouse and your parents and your coworkers. When you submit to others... You're doing it out of a reverence, devotion, or adoration for Christ himself. But the likewise is also true when we don't submit to others. It is out of a dishonor, disregard, and disrespect, and even a hatred for Christ himself. Now, a lot of times we don't see it that way. But that's the way scripture presents itself. For example, if I ask you to serve those beside you and to get on your knees and serve them for the rest of the day as their servant, somebody beside you, how do you think that would go in your life? That I'm going to be their servant. Well, a lot of times we have this thing inside of us that kind of fights against, fights against that. That's because we love to sit on as many thrones in our life as possible. We love to do it. We know, we know it's like this. God is the ultimate king in my life, I know he's on the throne. He's on the throne. But all the other areas of my life, I'm going to try to be the, the king on those thrones. How many of you ever did, you're, you're going out to the car, and there's the front seat, and in order to claim the front seat, what do you yell? Shotgun, right? Ever do shotgun? My brothers and I growing up, we'd head on out to the car. As soon as we go out the door, shotgun, and then... It's like we claim it, but we still fight for it on the way there. We're tripping each other, kicking, pushing. 
to get to the front seat because we really love each other. And so we were trying to get the front seat. If you jump in the front seat and you said shotgun, it's kind of like you have both things in your favor. But if you got to the front seat, you didn't say shotgun, you're still fighting for it. Well, ultimately, I knew the parents were in the driver's seat. I couldn't take that spot. But I'm going to get the next best place, the front seat, and yell shotgun. Well, how does that look in our marriage? I know God is ultimately in control, and he sits on the throne of my life. But what about our marriage? Am I, in the, am I in the center stage there, or do I put my spouse there? What about our workplace? What about with our children? What about in the church? Do I come to have a center stage spot or to give center stage spot to others? I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, are you yelling shotgun or fighting for the following areas? Who's in the throne in the following areas? Verse 22 of Ephesians 5 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For he is husband, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You may know God is sitting on the throne, but what about in your marriage, wives? Do you fight for that position, for that throne in your life? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands with a joy and a reverence as you would Christ himself? Verse 25, husbands. Scripture says to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. Husbands, are you submitting to Christ and loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Or do you fight for that position of honor in your marriage? Are you listening to her needs, showing her love and devotion, helping point her to Christ? That's part of our job as leading the family is pointing our wife and our family to Jesus Christ. Do we submit to the governing authorities God has placed over us? Do we do it joyfully? Do we do that to the government? Do we do that as hard as it is to say, sometimes to the president and the decisions that are made there? Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I feel awkward teaching on the next point, but sometimes it's hard for us to submit to authority in a church. Scripture talks about authority structure in the church as well. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, even in church, we fight for that position where we come here as the person in place of the honor. We do it in every area. We try to fight for as much control as we can get, ultimately knowing at the end of the day, God's on the throne. But all these other areas that trickle down, I'm going to fight to be at the top level of where I can be. And when we look to Jesus Christ himself, he came not to be served, but to serve. If Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, can do that, 
we're called to follow in his footsteps. It seems as if we're always trying to say, I'm independent, but God has placed authority over us to show us we're not independent. And it's actually for our good. Because God says, when we push against authorities in our life, it's to show us a heart issue going on in our own life. And God wants us to see those things. Is it tough to submit to a spouse who's not following the Lord? Of course it is. But that's something God calls us to do anyways. And I just want to share, whether we think someone is qualified or not doesn't matter. If the Lord has placed them there, it's a command and we're called to honor the Lord. And Terry and I will be the first to tell you in regards to, as pastors, for anyone to look to submit to us, we know we're not qualified. We know we're not wise enough. We're not experienced enough. We're not old enough. There's all these things we would say that you don't deserve to submit. But if Christ has said to do so, it's a command. The same with your spouse. Your spouse doesn't deserve you to submit to them. But you do it out of a reverence for Christ. Children, your parents don't deserve for you to submit to them. You do it because you love the Lord and out of a reverence for Christ. In all of these areas, we do it out of a reverence for Christ. He's directly tied our submission to our love for him. I want to end by reading Philippians chapter 2, and then I'll pray for us. Philippians chapter 2 says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, I pray that we don't forsake what Christ has done for us by having division in the church, by not being eager to pursue unity in our relationships with others. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for coming and dying for our sins, taking the wrath of God upon yourself so that we don't have to face that, that we can now live in joy and harmony with you, with others, and with God. God, what a privilege that is. I thank you that we are able to do things such as worship and prayer and fellowship. These are not have-tos. God, they're privileges. They're things we get to do as your children. I pray that may be the attitude of our heart. God, we love you. We give you praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.